Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Elwood Watson is here. Elwood is a historian, syndicated columnist, and author of a book called Keeping It Real and other collections of essays. And he is a professor of history and African-American studies at East Tennessee State. We had a great conversation. We talked a lot about historical stuff. Um, I asked what era of U.S. history compares to this one. His answer was interesting. We talk about the potential for civil war. We talk about Biden and his reelection um, campaign, even though we recorded this one month ago on March 25th. We kind of knew that Biden was going to announce and run. We talk about the word woke. We talk a little bit about masculinity and what it means to be a man in 2023 in this, in this weird <laughs> 21st century. So great conversation with him. Stick around for that. Guys, this has been a good week, news-wise, right? I mean, usually I start the show and I say, oh my God, what a terrible week. This has been a good week. We've got three really great things that happened this week. Number one, the New York Knickerbockers, my Knicks, defeated the Cleveland Cavaliers in five last night. They are going to the second round of the NBA playoffs for the first time in 10 years. And 10 years ago, I didn't like that team. This is the first team I've actually liked that I've been able to watch and enjoy uh, in quite some time, really since like 1999. So appropriately enough, they are playing the Miami Heat, the eight seed who beat the number one seed Milwaukee Bucks also last night. So this is a Miami-New York rivalry renewal. And if you are a casual fan and you want to check this out, 
Watch Jimmy Butler on Miami being guarded by Josh Hart of the New York Knicks. And oh my God, it's going to be crazy television. It's going to be amazing. I'm very excited about this. Uh, it's just a great day for New York sports fans. So I know most people listening to this don't care about sports, but trust me, it's a good thing. Number two thing that happened this week that was great. Joe Biden announced formally he is running for re-election. Uh, we talk about this in the, in the interview with Elwood, but... Um, let me just say up front, I've got a message for the media and for, you know, if you're on TV, if you're a pundit, if you write a column for, say, the New York Times or whatever, this message is for you. All this stuff about his age, just shut up. Really, just shut up about it. Because here's the thing. He's running. So you're either going to get him or you're going to get, you know, the Republican candidate who's either going to be bobblehead boy over in Japan there, Ron DeSantis, or uh, Donald Trump, who, what's Donald Trump doing this week? Oh, right. He's being uh, accused of rape. His rape trial began this week. So you're going to get a, a guy who's, a, who's had four dozen accusations of rape and sexual assault in Donald Trump, who also, by the way, is going to be 77 in June and is not exactly a spring chicken. Those are the two options. That's how the political system works. And if you go around criticizing Biden for his age, you're just playing into their uh, their whole thing. Their whole thing. That's all they've got is to be like, he's too old. He's too old. He's too old. Now, you might think he's too old. I wish he was a little bit younger. Sure. But going around bitching and moaning about it, that is not helpful. So just stop. Have the thought in your brain. Don't say it. Don't write about it. Don't make it a fucking talking point because that's what their side wants. Okay? We want Biden to win. We want to maintain what's going on here. We want to maintain the rebound from the almost fascist overthrow of Trump. And the way to do that is to get Biden reelected. So please, for the love of God, stop talking about how old he is. There's good things about being that old too, right? He's not worried about re-election. He's not worried about anything. He's going to do what he thinks is right for the American people. He's very concerned with his legacy. We're lucky to have him. We want him to stick around. And you know what? If he's too old when he uh, gets re-elected, you know what he's going to do? He's going to retire and he's going to hand the car keys over to his vice president, Kamala Harris, who again is going to be the vice presidential nominee. Uh, wouldn't I get into this also uh, in the discussion? She is going to be uh, on the ticket. So stop trying to replace her. Stop it. Just stop. Just support the team. Okay. That's what we need to be doing right now. If you don't like her, if you think she's out of the spotlight or she's the vice president, vice presidents are always out of the spotlight. That's the fucking job is every vice president that ever existed struggled with this. So stop playing into their narrative. Their narratives are, one, Biden's too old, and two, Kamala's not popular, nobody likes her. So stop reinforcing those narratives. They're bullshit. We're lucky that Biden's running again. We're lucky. So appreciate what we've got, and uh, let's do this thing, man. Let's do this thing. Let's bring this thing home. And for Trump, you know, this rape trial is... I know there's no such thing as bad publicity, but if you Google Donald Trump's name right now, all that's popping up is he's been accused of rape in a court of law by E. Jean Carroll, who's been saying the same thing for years, which means that, spoiler alert, it's true. It really happened. He did this thing. Look, if he didn't do the thing, why would he be running away from it? Why would he be like, no, you're not going to get my DNA, you know? He's behaving like a guy who's guilty. He's been behaving like a guy who's guilty, and he's a fucking criminal. We know this. He's a criminal. Of course he rapes people. It's what he does. It's his whole thing. So 
Those are your choices. You get Biden, who's awesome, or you get Trump, who's a rapey fascist criminal. So, you know, choose accordingly. Okay, number three, Tucker Carlson. Bye-bye. Uh, kind of a shock, right? The timing of it. He was on TV on Friday saying he'd be back Monday, plugging some bullshit that he was going to have on the show on Monday. And then Thunderbolt from the sky. Rupert Murdoch and Tucker break up. We're not really sure what happened or why. Lots of people are speculating. It doesn't even really matter at the end of the day. What matters is that this mouthpiece for fascism, this white supremacist asshole, is gone. He's been deprived forever of his platform. And from what I'm reading, he's not allowed to talk ill of Fox. He's not allowed to really say much about this. And, you know, yeah, maybe he's going to get a job somewhere else doing something similar, but I don't know. I keep thinking about the platform and something that professional Tucker watcher from Media Matters for America, Kat Abugazale, said when she was on the show. This is what she said. I want to play this clip. It's a very weird symbiotic relationship between Murdoch and Tucker. Tucker knows the reason his show is so popular is because he got O'Reilly's slot. Yeah. So we're going to find out now. Is Tucker popular because he's Tucker? Maybe. Or is he popular just because he had the eight? p.m. slot. Could they put an inanimate carbon rod in the 8 p.m. slot and get clicks? You know what I mean? People just have their their channel set to that station and then that's it. They're just that's all they watch and they don't care who's on there. We're about to find out. It's going to be interesting. Um, speaking of Tucker and him running for president, I don't think he's going to run. I may be wrong. He may be told to run and not have much choice in the matter, but Again, going back to the interview with Kat that we did a couple weeks ago, which I encourage you to listen to uh, if you haven't already, Tucker has been remarkably private about his, you know, his life, his personal life. He rarely says anything personal on that show. It's all performative. We know nothing about him. We really don't know a thing about him. He doesn't talk about his wife. He doesn't talk about his kids. He doesn't talk about things he likes. He's just, he doesn't really have a personality that we get to you know, glean from what's going on. I was texting with Nia Molinari, who also, you know, did a lot of work on, on Tucker, wrote about him on Prevail. She said, he's not, um, you know, he's not a nice guy. He's a mean guy pretending to be nice. That's what she said. He's a narcissist who's really a mean person pretending to be nice. And I don't know. I think maybe that kind of tracks. If he runs for president, he is going to have so much scrutiny upon him, it's going to make his head explode. And his head's pretty big anyway, so it looks close to exploding. You know, remember, he was friends with Dennis Hoff, that pimp. You know, why was he friends with that guy? There's a lot of weird stuff going on with Tucker, with his father, with his son working for Jim Banks. There's lots of, of stuff. There's lots of shady things going on. And it may be all fine, but my guess is that Tucker does not want the media poking around in his personal life. And that's what happens when you run for president. So if he ran, would he do well? Yeah, I think he would. I think he, you know, he's got the, everyone knows who he is. He's young. He's a really good debater. He could raise money for sure. But that's the price that he would have to pay. And I think personally, I may be wrong. I've been wrong plenty of times. I think that it's too steep a price for him to pay. I don't think he would want to pay that price. I think he values his privacy and whatever he does in the privacy of his own home. Wherever he was with dinner with Matt Gates and whoever was with them, he wants people not to be talking about that kind of thing. And, you know, we've seen this before. We see it now in Tennessee. Um, you know, unfortunately, I had Elwood on before all the Tennessee 
three stuff because I would have liked to get his take on that too. But um, you know, the Cameron Sexton, the Speaker of the House in Tennessee, there nobody knew who that guy was. Nobody cared what he was up to until he uh, expelled the three representatives. Right now. The media starts paying attention and all this dirty laundry comes pouring out of his closet. Like, you don't want that if you're these guys. And if you're Tucker, I think he's smart enough to know that he doesn't want the media poking around, fucking up his good time, right? So I don't think he's going to run. I think maybe this might be it for him. I think he's a proud guy. I think he doesn't want to be, you know, relegated to some crap TV network like Newsmax or whatever. And also, there's still the lawsuit. So, you know, he's still being sued. Um, you know, we'll see what comes out of that. I don't think it's going to be a bright, rosy future for Tucker Carlson. So, again, good news week. You know, it's been a lot of misery for seven years. There's been a lot of really bad shit. There's a lot of really bad shit this week, too. There always is. But when we have the victories, when we have the good days, I feel like it's really important to savor them. So savor these things, guys. It's uh, it's good times, you know? It's good times. It's good times that Tucker's gone. It's good times that Joe is running again. And it's good times in New York. Go, New York. Go, New York. Go. Yeah. Game starts Sunday. Tune in. Okay. Without further ado, we will be right back with Elwood Watson. Tucker, he parted ways with Fox. Tucker... The office there was toxic. Tucker, he's fluffing for her mind. I'm glad Tucker's gone. Tucker can go get a job now with Newsmax. OA and RT, wherever else they ignore facts. A white supremacist lying for white supremacists. He's nothing but Alex Jones in a bow tie. Broadcast his show from Budapest. Platforms the most repulsive guests. The lips of Todd Lady and Kanye West. And even Kyle Rittenhouse. Tucker costs Rupert a lot of money. He's the lion mouthpiece of the GOP. to see how much bullshit it's been Elwood Watson welcome to Prevail Podcast thank you for having me Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Um, I got a bunch of topics I want to talk to you about. Uh, before we get to it, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I will have already introduced you a little bit in the uh, the intro to the to the program. But uh, you're a professor of history at East Tennessee State. Uh, you've written a couple books. You have a a kind of regular column uh, or, or some sort of relationship there with the Portland Press Herald, where you write essays about uh, you know news of the day and stuff like that. Um, where else can people find you? And what's your what 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 have you been thinking about lately? What's your, you know, your driving focus right now? Well, uh, thank you. I am a professor of history 
uh, Black Studies and Gender and Sexuality Studies at East Tennessee State University. I do write a syndicated column. I'm a syndicated columnist with Cagle Syndicate. Okay. So that's where you can find my columns. And um, the Portland Press-Herald is one of the newspapers that do run my column. Uh, those those are uh, some of the places where people can reach me. They can see some of my articles and books on Amazon, uh, and hopefully they'll be willing to purchase some after this interview. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> okay, so you have a book called uh, Keeping It Real. That's the, that's the latest one, right? Is that the... Well, the latest one is talking to you, bro. Okay, I want to talk about that one later. We'll talk about that okay. one later. We're okay. keeping it real. Uh, keeping it real. Now, it, that's, this is a collection of essays. Uh, so, what, what's the thrust of that book? What What are the essays in there about? Is there kind of a, a common theme? Uh, the common theme is that all these essays were written in the uh, during the post Obama Trump era, okay. and they're issues that I write about uh, topics that are you know associated with the latter years of the Obama administration up until the uh during the as well as during the Trump years and be um after even a couple of after he after he leaves office in um 2021. And uh uh so that's pretty much it's like an essays to look at those uh the, during that time frame to look at issues that were surrounding uh those two the air presidency eras, but not the presidencies specifically, but topics about individuals who certainly emerged during that time and were certainly in the popular culture uh, on a regular basis, as well as topics and issues that dominate the public sphere. Let's let's dig into that now, because I got a bunch of things I want to pick your brain about and see where you're. Okay. You know, uh, Kamala Harris, vice president of these United States, seems to be a target of a lot of. Uh, alt-right, you know, Trumpy, MAGA, disinformation campaigns, um, smear campaigns. I think that be that job of vice president sort of is inherently not one where one shines, no matter who you are. Um, to put her in that role um, sort of takes her, it, it almost plays into their strengths of how they can attack her. Um why do you think there's a, a backlash specifically on her? I think it's because she's really popular and good. But uh, and what can we do about it, to, about pushing back on it? Well, historically speaking, the office of the vice presidency has been a stand in for the presidency. They attend funerals. I mean, they, you know, they um, cut ribbons at ceremonies. A vice presidential job is not one where somebody should, uh, historically speaking, has not been a job where uh that particular uh holder of that office has been very much in the public eye right you know you don't see you, you just so it's not a job where it requires a lot of, of public relations except when the president requests that individual to vice his vice his or her vice president well his vice president to um step in on his behalf so i think to me um the office is not one that historically has been one that is given a lot of public presence. In fact, the vice president's phone number up until the early 1960s was in the phone book. You could actually contact the vice president of the United States. I mean, it just goes to show you. Yeah. What the, you know, they so, had plenty of time, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, see, it just goes to show you how the office was kind of, you know, regarded. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think it was um, uh, the senator from uh, uh, one of the Southern senators told um, uh, Lyndon Johnson when he was uh considering the uh, vice presidency or what uh, John Kennedy offered him the uh, prize, uh, uh, the vice presidency uh, in 1960 in an effort to try to appease Southern Democrats because he was a right. uh, 
you know, a New Englander, you know, a Roman Catholic and him and Doc Joseph Biden are, all, are the only two Roman Catholic presidents we've ever had in this country. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we know Catholicism at that time was very, very seen as suspicious. So my point is, is that uh, the guy told Lyndon Johnson that the office wasn't worth a warm bucket of spit, you know, but um, <laughs> just go ahead and take it because, you know, stuff. and uh, I think they thought Johnson would not take it. He, and he called him the, ne- the next day and said, I'll take it, you know, even though they may not have been in, in sincere and offering him the job or assuming he would take it. But it probably did work in his favor in a lot of ways, because it did probably get some of those reassured Southern Democrats and things as well. Now, what I'm getting why I mentioned all that, I'm getting to your question in that. I think in the case of Kamala Harris, she's the first black woman, the first Asian woman to be East Asian woman, to be uh, first woman to be president, vice president of the United States. And for many people, I think it's definitely uh, race. Let's just call it what it is. I think a lot of it's racism, you know, I think yeah. it's sexism, it's racism, it's sexism. And I think a lot of people are resentful of the fact that a black woman is occupying, a woman of color is occupying that position. And um, I think some of the Republicans, I think there's so much misogyny and sexism within that office. I think they'd have a problem if a woman was occupying that office, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah, I, I, I heard of such, you know, as well. Um, would they be as acerbic and, you know, blunt in their attacks? Probably not, but they would be much more sophisticated, you know, code words and messages, you know, what well, she's hysterical or she's, you know, they would use those type of terms as yeah. well. I mean, how often do we hear a man say a man's hysterical? But I think a lot of it has to do with her, you know, her race, her, you know, uh, gender and, um that's one of the reasons I think that she's a, such a target from the from the, from, from the right. Uh, there are people on the left who have been somewhat standing amber with the uh, you know Vice President Attorney Harris. Um, I think she's a very intelligent woman. I think she's a very I mean a very smart woman. I think she's very very capable. I also think that um, she has been giving a job where immigration and the the and the uh, issues that she's been given, as far as I know, by the Biden administration, I'm assuming she was uh, given those topics to handle. They're not glamorous topics, and I'm not sure anybody could really do a good job in addressing those issues. No president before Biden has addressed the immigration issues. You know, all the presidents we've had from George W. Bush uh, to Obama, uh, to President Obama, to, you know, Donald Trump, for that matter, has been able to address the issue of immigration. So why would we expect a, a vice president to be able to handle that issue and have succinct, concrete answers for that particular topic? That is being said, it's an excuse for them to attack her and to, to demean her. My concern is that many, when we, maybe not many, but some on the left are playing into the hands of the right, trying to um, end their you know, somewhat criticisms, no matter how mild of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Vice President Harris. The fact is, Joe Biden is going to run for president. Yep. He's, Kamala Harris is going to be his vice president. Okay. Amen. Going to remove <laughs> Kamala Harris. And yep. I think there are several reasons for that. Black women are the largest base of the Democratic Party. Okay. Uh, that would be a very unwise move and I'm being polite in the word I'm using, to remove, you know, uh, Kamala Harris from that position. Okay. And I think that um, by doing so, that would also raise questions about, well, maybe she was 
less than capable. And why would Biden do that? They might also raise questions about him as well. So why would you even take that risk? No, the vice president's job is to be to, you know, handle the case. And if anything happens to the president, then that person becomes president. So I don't see any benefit in removing Kamala Harris from the ticket. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the the quote unquote controversy there is a product of uh, a mostly white left wing pundit class that does that just needs something to talk about and personally doesn't like her. I mean, there was the you know that whole New York Times Brett Stevens Gail Collins discussion about it. It's like what the fuck do you two know about anything? You know the the it, the the people that are the candidates that uh, sort of this rah rah left championed. We're losers most of the time. Elizabeth Warren, who was so beloved by a certain uh, segment of the the left, um, you know, she got trounced in the primaries. She came in third in Massachusetts. That's her state. You, you know, you have to win your own state. You know, you can't you can't do that or, and and hope to win. So I'm glad to hear you say that. I agree. I think Biden, you know, this whole throw Biden off the ticket and replace him with someone younger is like a you know, I think it read better in the original Russian when the uh, Kremlin thought it up. And, uh, you know, it's the same way with with uh, with replacing Kamala. They're just trying to, you know, throw wedges in there. And the, the you know, actuarial tables suggest that she may well be our first uh, female president. I mean, you know, Biden is going to be 81 in his in his second term starts, which is not he's in good shape, but that that's not young. So uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. This is me talking here. In 2025, I could see him stepping down at some point in 2025. Yeah. I, I, I've been saying the same thing. I think he would like to. Yeah. Well, he said he's going to, he wants to be a transformational president. Yep. So that would be the classic example of transformation. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, because no president in recent history has done that. And also, too, it would, tra- it would, it would result in the first, you know, biracial woman being president of the United States. So you can't get much more transformative than that. Yeah, I, I agree. I've been saying the same thing. I've been saying yeah. the exact same thing. I think he wants to do it for a lot of reasons, but also just to be like, fuck you to the. <laughs> I think that, yeah. I think, and I think, can you imagine the, the, the right wings? I mean, you talk about his exploding, my goodness, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great. But I think that's probably what's going to um, occur. But no, but the, 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 the answer to the end of the question, the 2024 Democratic ticket is going to be Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris. Good. Yeah, I agree. So let, let's let's stick with the Biden topic, because I have I have a bunch of questions on here that don't have any rhyme or reason or order. That's okay. um, so uh, where does where does he rank for you historically? Because I've done a lot of talking on podcasts and I've written about it. And I think Biden is the best president of my lifetime. That's that's my my hot take. And uh, I think historically, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, when people are looking back on this time period, I think he's going to be not in the top tier with the FDR and Lincoln, but he's going to be in that tier right below that with, uh, you know, whoever else, Eisenhower and and uh, that that level of, of president based on what he was inheriting when he came in and, uh, you know, all the all the stuff he managed to get accomplished in the face of sort of remarkable odds. And I should I should tell you because you don't know me. I did not think this heading into the thing. I was not a Biden believer by any means. I was. I was team Kamala from the beginning and I went went to Biden almost by default uh, because he seemed to be the guy. And I was sort of rolling my eyes at like, okay, we have another like very old white guy. Aren't we tired? If we're going to have a white guy, at least can it be a Gen X white guy? 
And uh, no, it has to be somebody old. But you know, the 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 record is the record. So what what's your thinking on that? Where do you rate him historically? Oh, where do we begin? Um, I would say first of all, I was surprised that uh, Biden got the nomination, and the reason I say that is historically speaking. The Democrats have tended to go younger with their presidents. Mm-hmm. If you look at Kennedy, 43, Obama, 47, Clinton, 46. At least in the modern era, they have went younger with their presidents. So I did think it would probably be someone like um, Kamala, uh, although she was in her, she's in her 50s, but I think, or um, Julian Castro, who was my personal favorite choice. I was a big fan of Julian Castro. He's great. Yeah. And I thought it would be, you know, maybe somebody of the um of the of, of that generation, possibly Cory Booker. Uh, I thought it would be, you know, one of one of those individuals who would get the nomination because of the Democrats going historically younger. Anyway, I think that Biden, well, he's from my home state of Delaware. I mean he represents Delaware. So I'm a Delaware. He's also a University of Delaware graduate, class of 65. I was class of 90 and MA 92. So we both had that blue hen um, um, connection. So I definitely have that affinity for him on the, based on those factors as well. And I think, yes, I think, to your other question, I think that Biden's going to be seen as a transformational president, given what he inherited. Uh, like you said, a nation has been rife with chaos, disunity, fragmentation, hatred abroad because of his predecessor, Mr. Trump. And so I think he's done a fantastic job as well. And the fact that he defied conventional wisdom. If you remember during the midterms, it's going to be a red wave. It's going to be a red wave that, you know, the Democrats are going to lose probably I can up to 40 seats in the house and Mm -hmm. I'll be just a doomsday scenario. And this is God be my witness. Anybody who knows this, lightly strike me down if I'm lying. I kept telling people there is not going to be a red wave. I do not see this red wave coming to everybody in the media and what many people in the media were saying. And God knows exactly what I said. And it came to pass that it did not occur. So, I mean, he actually defied expectations. Now, Clinton did the same thing in 1998, but Joe Biden did so under much more, uh, you know, less certain circumstances. Because yeah. in 98, we had a strong economy and, you know, a lot of a lot of dynamics that were going to take place. The economy is humming along right now, but it, there were a lot of things that were on Biden's plate that Clinton didn't necessarily have to deal with. So, and also in the 90s, for the most part, Clinton, there was pretty much peace and prosperity. The 90s was kind of a relatively peaceful decade. There was not too many, there was stuff going on and Kosovo and, you know, Bosnia and those areas. But outside the rest of the world, it was largely a peaceful time. Yeah. And the economy was good. So, I mean, Clinton didn't have too much, you know, to, um, a lot of his issues were self-imposed. We don't need to go into those. But <laughs> but I think uh, but I think that um, in the case of Biden, I think he's had much more to contend with. Despite, you know, the level of crisis that hit this White House, boom, 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 boom. He was, he's been able to kind of, you know, to certainly, uh, you know, certainly, uh, uh, you know, handle them and um, move forward. So, yes, I think based on those factors, I think it'll probably be, I say in the top 20, you know, maybe top 15, I'd say top 15, you know, but certainly in the first half, I think, you know, he's going to be in a really, but I'd say probably in the top, you know, 10 to 15, I think that's where I'd probably put him, you know, so. 
and yeah. even perhaps even higher. But I think that um, uh, but I say certainly in the top ten to fifteen, which is very very good. Yeah, to be in that in that realm. There's no shame in it. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, there's no shame in it. So, uh, okay, um, let's stick with history then. What, which historical period in U.S. history reminds you the most of what we're going through right now? The 1850s. The 1850s. Okay. There are a lot of eerie things that are happening today that are happening that were happening in the 1850s. Talk of secession, and you know, strong hostility toward immigration. Uh, you know, xenophobia was rampant. Um, you had a previous president who was inept, James Buchanan, and a lot of factors to me that are very, you know, uh, attacks on the press. You know, on the other hand, you have the press that's kind of also somewhat unhinged in certain ways. So I think that a lot of things are happening that remind me of the 1850s. I think it was Mark Twain who said it best that history doesn't exactly repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yep. And I think we're headed toward a civil war of some sort in this country. I think we're kind of seeing it now. I'm not talking about a war between the states like we saw in the 19th century. But I do think we're seeing, you know, cultural wars. I think you're going to see, you know, a violence, unfortunately, begin to occur. I think that um, like the the people, the white supremacists who try to attack the power grids in North Carolina, attack those and things as well. I think having a sniper attack, I think we're going to see, heaven forbid, I think you can see almost, you know, buildings being blown up. I can see kids of prominent people or prominent people being the target of attack. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that I think we're kind of headed toward and, if the tide don't stem. I think a lot of it's racially, but I also think a fair amount of it is also economically driven. You know, so I think we have we can't really ignore the economic component to it as well. So that's what to answer your question. I think a lot of it's more like the 1850s, you know, uh, mid-19th century, that I see that is very, very uh eerily similar to what is taking place today. And that to me is a very troubling sign because that was one of the most perilous times in our nation's history. Yeah, no, it, 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 you're not kidding. Um, that that was actually. I have another question, which I just wrote. Civil war coming? Question mark. So you, you've answered that, but I want to I want to talk about it a little bit more because I think what you you hit on an interesting point about it not being a war between the states because it really is a war in our minds in a sense, and it's not like you know th- these are states where you know at, in the 1850s and 60s slavery is legal here it's not legal here you know it's it's not practiced in the north it is practiced in the south so right. the 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 lines of of demarcation were very clear this is i live in a pretty blue county in upstate new york and there's still people with the dumb pickup trucks with the fuck biden flag and the, you know all of that stuff like there are people that are you know true believers um everywhere all you know in all 50 states no matter how uh quote unquote blue they are and how do you how do you you know reconcile with that because i don't know what the answer is it's one thing if you know hey we're from new york and we have to go down and fight these people in alabama but if half the people are in alabama and half the people in new york are fighting amongst themselves i mean where do we even uh draw the line um i don't know it's it's, it's very scary in a lot of ways you also mentioned about the violence, and this is, I think, we've been really, really lucky to avoid that so far. Um, you know, there's been violence, obviously, Charlottesville and stuff like that, but like real violence of the kind that you're talking about. So far, we've managed not to uh, go right. down that path. And I feel like 
I fear that when we get when we cross that line, that's a line, that's a, a Rubicon that once crossed is very, very difficult to to turn back and unite from. What do you think about that? Yes. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's like with the Fort Sumter, you know, when that happened in 1861, the war was on. Yeah. And I think I think, you know, we're headed toward an event that may be so catastrophic, you know, and, um, you know, and I think that, that, that we will find ourselves in a civil war of some sort. And I think, you know, I think Trump on some level right now is kind of engineering it, you know, going to Waco, you know, and, yeah. you know, you know, he knew this, the, what happened in Waco, Texas. I mean, you know, there were David Koresh and, you know, the apocalyptic, you know, mindset was there and, you know, uh, telling his supporters he was going to be arrested on this past Tuesday, you know, that was a way to uh, to get other, you get some of his supporters united and probably um, taking up arms and things as well. I mean, this is a man who is basically trampled on the Constitution, yeah. and, and he has no regards for the Constitution. I don't think he believes that the Constitution applies to him. Uh, I think he feels uh, that he is above the law. I mean, he's kind of proven uh, in some ways, for the most part, unfortunately, he's proven that until he ever does get indicted. I mean, what other president do you know? And in the modern era, there's never been a president, uh, uh, you know, any president of any era who basically tries to overthrow the government on January 6, 2021, which is what he did, you know, uh, tried to try to overthrow the government. And um, is still walking around and is being considered a presidential candidate for 2024. I mean, can you imagine if Obama tried to do something like that? <laughs> I mean, first of all, a group of Obama supporters, a group of people of color wouldn't have got anywhere near a state capital, yeah. let alone the U.S. capital. I mean, that's a given. I mean, January 6th would have been a bloodbath, okay? Yeah. It would have been a bloodbath, okay? It would have been rivers of blood going through the U.S. capital building as well as the streets of Washington, D.C. So we know that that would have been the case. Um, and to me, it's just a very, very, very troubling, alarming situation that we're finding ourselves in right now. As a historian, I can tell you democracy right now is on some very, very, very fragile ground. Yeah, I'm not alone in saying this, and I'm not being dramatic and overdramatic and apocalyptic. Michael Bleschkloss, in fact, leading historians, Doris Kearns, Goodwins, and others. In fact, there were a number, there were a group of historians who met with President Biden, I believe, last summer, about a part of a year ago, talking to him about the current state of affairs in, United, in the United States, because they are so concerned about where things are. And I harbor the same concerns, and, you know, it's somewhat unnerving. Yeah, now, that's no polite way. I know that's not reassuring but no but nobody listening to this disagrees with you by the way as, I, as, <laughs> okay. as, as the title of my book said i keep it real so there you go yeah, yeah. that's where i see things i had on uh bryn Tannehill um on my show who wrote a book called american fascism and she has this interesting prediction for how this is going to go so i wanted to run it by you to see what you think as a historian okay she thinks that you know in light of the almost irreconcilable differences between the red, you know, places like Florida and Texas and Mississippi, where you have these basically fascists uh, running the states as governors, these fascist governors, it's not going to be possible to really 
you know, stay the way that we are now and allow like all these abortion laws to take place. It's just it, it's inconsistent with democracy. So she says it's either going to be like Hungary or it's going to be like Yugoslavia. So it'll either be like Hungary, meaning that the elections will happen, but they will be bullshit and just kind of, uh, you know, they'll they'll voter suppress their way to victory and gerrymander or whatever they have to do. You know, the stuff they do now, like in Texas, where they just right. make it hard for people to vote and stuff like that. Or and and then it'll just be, you know, kind of this quote unquote democracy, but almost in name only where rights slowly sort of get taken away and one party takes over the fascist party, which is now the GOP. Or it's going to be Yugoslavia where it just divides and we'll have, you know, I'm in New York. We'll have New, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts will be one state. And, uh, you know, California, uh, Oregon, Washington will be another and so on. And then that that will fracture the United States will fracture like Yugoslavia will. Um, do you what do you think about those theories or, or do you think one or the other or do you have another uh, possibility in mind? I think balkanization is probably going to be a remote outcome. Mm-hmm. I don't think that um, I think there are people who would actually like that result. But I don't believe that's going to be a likely outcome because I think there are so many interests in the United States at the moment, uh, including global interests, that I think would do everything possible to prohibit such a result. Yeah. And I think that um, there's too much money to be made by too many people in this nation in, in order to allow that to happen. The only re- way I can see that uh, such a result happening is that things just got so out of control and there was nothing they could do about it. But I think all the stops would be pulled to prevent such an outcome, prohibit such an outcome. I think that the other part about DeSantis and um, and voting and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I think there are people right now, I think they're, they're certainly trying to water down, they look at the Voting Rights Act. And I mean, mm-hmm. there are definitely people who've been trying to, you know, use voter suppression, uh, you know, uh, tactics, so to speak, uh, that you have to have a certain kind of license, that you have to have, you know, these type of things, or you have to be, you know, you can't use your student ID because they're, they see young people as somewhat being disproportionately um, non-fascist. Well, not that and voting for Democrats and voting right. for Democrats, you know, that's what yeah. they see. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's an effort, there's definitely all type of, you know, uh, effort to prohibit groups that they dislike from voting or, you know, suppress the vote in an effort to get the outcome that they so desire. Um, I think that's one of the reasons I think you'll see, like I said, heaven forbid, such reactions to individuals, because I, I don't believe the average American, including myself, is I'm not going to resort to violence, no, by any means. Let me get that clear. But yeah. I do think a lot of people who are going to not just take such, you know, disrespect and a dispossession of their civil liberties and freedoms lying down, you know, taking having them taken away from them without responding. What yeah. kind of what kind of democracy would we live in if that was the case? I mean, if you have no freedom, it's almost like Patrick Henry is that, you know, give me liberty or give me death. I mean, you know, so and then by that status, you know, that type of we would be in a fascist state. And I think that we kind of have a, a creeping fascism taking place in our United States right now. I mean, it's, you know, the things that are Ron DeSantis and others are beginning to advocate you know, um, uh, uh, as well. He is an interesting individual in the sense that I don't know if he thinks this kind of these kind of antics that he is engaging in 
and Florida. I'm not convinced they're going to play if he you know if he decides to run. And apparently he was in Iowa, so therefore I think that's a good indication. But I don't yeah. see where that's going to play well in most of the nation. I mean, because the things he's doing right now, I don't know why he would even think, you know, banning education books and, you know, AP, that he thinks it's going to play well in most of the nation. I'm not even sure how well it plays in Florida. I mean, right. I think, but I, but I think to me, if he's running for president or thinking about running for president, he's getting whoever his advisors are, they're certainly giving, I think, I could be wrong, but I think I'm probably right, that they're giving him some bad advice because, or he's he's making the wrong moves if he's wanting to become you know, the 40, you know, seventh president of the United States, I think he's making some bad, bad moves. Yeah. I think his advisor principally is his wife, but, you know, I okay. she runs around dressed like Avita. So what do we know? What does she know? Well, Avita's giving us some bad advice. So I, think, I think so. <laughs> to your point about the violence also, it almost feels like the powers that be want it that way because of the guns and the fact that they just want it to be easier and easier for everybody to own as many guns as possible and be able to take them wherever they want and all this kind of stuff. It's almost like they're, they're priming the pump for some sort of bloodshed, um, which is already happening with the, the school shootings and stuff, but you know, how hard it's, 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 it's just maddening to me that they can't figure this stuff out, that they want to make easy access to guns, but not to uh, medical care. It's just kind of crazy. Um, I want to tell you my half joke theory about Texas, and then we'll, we'll take a, a break. Um, so I said this in jest, but uh, Texas, as you know, you know, was its own independent country or state uh, back in the 1830s. And it joined the United States, mostly because John Tyler had it in his head that it, that it would be a good idea. And uh, used his entire presidency to get that to happen. And uh, it was after he left that they we signed the Tyler Treaty, which is what annexed Texas. So rather than have a civil war where states secede, I think what we should do is we should just nullify the Tyler Treaty, right? So just mm -hmm. kick Texas out. And <laughs> then all of a sudden we have control of the Senate all of these, and we lose two of the worst senators in, in Cruz and the Corwin guy, uh, Cornyn, whatever his name is. Uh, all yeah. of these horrible, hateful people that are in the House of Representatives in Texas. And uh, there's no more border problem either, because Texas then becomes this buffer zone uh, that we don't have to worry about. So I think once we did that, we could, you know, expand the court and, uh, I don't know, codify voting rights and all this sort of stuff. And uh, that would be it. I, I proposed this as a joke, but the more I think about it, I don't know that it would be a terrible idea. I don't know. What do you think? Well, Texas is talking about one. I mean, a number of Texas who talk about flirting with the idea of succession, of succession, don't they? I mean, so it's not really um, that it's not being talked about in Texas, you know, yeah. I mean, from the governor to the senator with Greg Abbott and um, the senator. I mean, Texas. There are pockets of blue in Texas, Austin. Sure. Uh, I'd say San Antonio kind of, you know, leans blue. I mean, there's certain pockets of the state. Houston probably is more blue. But I think the vast majority of the state, Dallas, Fort Worth, those areas probably tend to be, Corpus Christi, tend to be probably more red. And I think those are the areas, like I said, you know, Texas is probably going to be, there was talk about Texas becoming blue. I'd say Texas is going to probably be red for at least the next 20 years. Doesn't mean it won't become blue, but I think that um, right now, for the most part, Texas is still a pretty conservative state. 
And um, and I think the people that kind of run the state right now are certainly the real hardcore uh, red, red, you know, red, uh, red identifying. And I think until some of those people die off or move out, you know, by the way, I think it's going to be, you know, about another, like I said, about another 20, about a better part of a quarter of a century before Texas does become um, blue or, or at the very least purple. And I think that um, that I think is probably going to come but I don't think it's going to happen within the immediate future. Okay. This is, this is too bad. Um, and again, I have a lot of friends in Texas. I think te- I've been to Texas. Texas has a lot going for it. And I hope that they can. I'll be going there in a couple of weeks for a conference. So where are you going? San Antonio. Okay. San Antonio. Is okay. Have you been to Dallas? No, I've never been to Dallas. I've been to Houston and I've been to San Antonio. Okay. Dallas is like, it's very nice. It's very, um, you know, Kennedy went there and they shot him. And I think it's more conservative now. I think, it's, it's mm. you know, uh, it, it's a very nice city, though, like physically, you know, the the mm. aesthetically. But, you know, the main tourist attraction is an off ramp where a president got shot. So I don't know. Oh, God. Um, yeah, it's true. Um, unless you consider like uh, Cowboys Stadium is not in Dallas proper. So it doesn't I also think it, Dallas also has this problem with I think with um, uh, racial tension as well, I gather. I don't know. Yeah. If it might have gotten better, but it was for a while it did. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Uh, it, it's a. It's a conservative, conservative place. I think the other cities are much, much more. Uh, you know, open minded and, and and liberal in that in that sense. So, okay, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Elwood Watson. Welcome to the Five Eight. This is what we do here. The Five Eight, your Friday night hang. We take five of the week's most notable and newsworthy topics and spend eight minutes covering each one. Yeah, it, it, like everything else associated with Trump, it's a walking disaster. Prosecution is important because it's the only thing that starts to puncture their personality cults. I really do need people to remember, like, tell uh, Americans history. Tell the actual story that this country actually did that. What we need to be selling out there is that we are the antidote to chaos, that we are actually Um, just for responsible, effective government. There is no greater um, issue that sums up democracy versus fascism than abortion. There is nothing more authoritarian than the state telling a woman that she must carry to term a a pregnancy that she does not want. Five segments, three minutes of evolving animation by Chunk, two revved up hosts, one comic interlude. It's not the end of the world, just a Twitter. A special guest. Basically, what we are now is bailout nation in banks. Because nowadays, elections are not about facts. And as many cocktails as we deem necessary. So I'm calling this a Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> when they go low, bury them. They're already down in the gutter. Join me. Greg Oliar and LB Stephanie Koff. Our rants to one another end up being this show. This is what we decided to do with our friendship. Friday nights, live, 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. It's the 5 8. I guess it's okay. People seem to like it. Okay, we're back with Owen Watson. Um, Okay, we talked about all the politics stuff uh, and the historical stuff, which was fun because I like to I like to delve into all these things. Um, lately, a lot I've been thinking what, what all of these MAGA people and these like very right wing 
DeSantis types and these libertarian types who want to destroy the New Deal and all this stuff. Like, where exactly in American history do they want to go? And I landed on the McKinley administration. I think they want it to be right around like 1900, the U.S. in its imperial phase, a, a president that everybody kind of likes okay, that just lets the businesses do what they want. Very little rights in terms of workers or anything like that. I think that's what they want. They want to bring back McKinleynomics uh, rather than go all the way back to, they probably would, wouldn't mind going all the way back to the 1850s too. But uh, that, that, that's my thinking. I don't know. I think they'd like to be honest. You no, know, I think they want to go back to the 1850s. I think there are people in this country, if they had their way, it would be 1800. I mean, I think, I think that um, Jim Crow, was too benign for some of these individuals. I think they want to go back to the mid 19th century, early 19th century in some cases, but certainly the mid 19th century. I think there's they they would love to embrace much of the 19th century with Jacksonian America, which was very anti-intellectual. I think you know, so I think there's a lot of dynamics there. I think that um, you know, slavery was still the law of the land in much of the South, of all the South. So I think there are a lot of people I think who would still certainly would want to go back to uh the 1850s and that era and stuff as well so i think they want to go back even further than mckinley yes i mean i think they want to add and implement imperialism and a lot of other factors that come along with it but i do think the culture of the 1850s and the mid-19th century was a time that um, um, many of these people you know have a perverse affinity for yeah well it's no it's no no wonder why i mean that's also a time when women couldn't vote for example mm -hmm. you know yeah. black people obviously couldn't vote it was just all property white guys voting i think i read a while ago that if you the, that whole the, the gilded age people like the carnegies and that that generation of people were all born in like the 1830s in this very small sliver of time and mm -hmm. that would be the best time to be born if you wanted to really make lots and lots of money in the united states um, which also tracks with, you know, sending it back to that time, because I think a lot of these people, um, you know, these insanely wealthy people who just can't pay more in taxes, they would rather, you know, th throw more billions onto their pile than, uh, you know, the rest of us have health care or something. Uh, that's that's who they look back and, and look up to are these, you know, Vanderbilt and, and uh, you know, people like that who just accumulated wealth and, you know, treated their employees like horribly and uh all this kind of stuff so um i don't know <laughs> robber barons yeah the robber barons and and just and just say fuck all to the uh to the people it's 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 crazy how many now we're seeing you know with these bank failures uh it, it makes its harken harken back to the days before the fdic when there were you know there were runs on banks all the time and and mm -hmm. real recessions that happened because there were runs on banks that really has not happened since the FDIC got passed under Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And it's, you know, it's better this way. And these people seem to not understand that or want it to be better this way. I don't know. It's very strange to me why anybody would want that. But I, I don't know. You know, greed is, you know, a factor. And some people, you know, greed has always been part of, you know, a segment of American society. So, you know, that is unfortunate, but true. Okay, I want to talk about you wrote it. You wrote a piece about this recently, and there, woke the word woke, okay, mm -hmm. has taken on this. I don't even know what to call it. This outsized significance in in culture right now. Um, it is a word that originated in the black culture. I think Lead Belly was the was the first person that uh, on record to use it in a in anywhere approaching the sense that it's used now. 
And he used it to mean sort of vigilance, sort of a hyper vigilance uh, in the black community. Then the word took on, you know, different sort of uh, subtle changes and then suddenly uh, was appropriated and now has been completely flipped around and is used by bigots and assholes to sort of as a shorthand for basically anything they don't like. Um, so what what it, what was your when you wrote that essay, what were you thinking about? What What's your take on the word? Should it be used at all? Uh, should white people use it at all? Should it just be retired forever? Or is it is it helpful now that the people that claim to be anti woke or, you know, pretty clearly people that we should be uh, opposing? Um, I would say, oh, obviously, a few things here um, that woke is the term woke means to be culturally aware and conscious. That's what was in the black community was. Uh, that's what it was like. So Leadbelly uh, did that earlier on. What has happened with the term woke is that people on the right have seen, they, you know, about a couple of years ago, woke became more prevalent in, in the larger society. And they saw people on the left or what they perceived to be left as using the term woke. And they felt the woke was anything that, you know, the, the people on the left supported. Therefore, uh, woke with them was, uh, you know, they use the term woke, you know, critical race theory is woke. You know, this, you know, it's like, you know, um, what is woke? They don't even know the word. The woman, Bethany Man, uh, Mandel, <laughs> you know, she was asked by Brianna Joy Gray of the uh, YouTube internet series Rising, how to define, w- w- define woke. You know, she was like, well, I, 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 you know, she just, you know, was, um, you know, had a loss for words, literally. And this is a woman who supposedly had written a book about the topic. But, you know, but yeah, mm-hmm. could not define it. So that was the point. I'm just saying with people like Christopher Rufo, uh, you know, Bethany Mandel and others on the right, they don't even know what the word woke means. They don't because they don't know what critical race theory is. They want it and they don't want it to be. They want it to have a very vague meaning because they way they feel they it's more effective for them to weaponize it against any group of individuals or people that they feel are a threat or an unalterable political threat to their agenda. That's I mean that's how they they want to use the word is they don't they they really don't want to have any kind of concrete meaning to it. Now as far as or the word have any concrete meaning, as far as uh, should we retire the words and stuff? I've never been one for retiring words. Okay, <laughs> I don't think we just want to start doing that. Okay, so but I think that we also need to reconsider words and how they've been employed and you know think about how we employ our words in our language and in the larger society. Okay, it's like the word with the N-word nigger. Okay, the word itself, yes, I mean, it is in the black community, it has, does have varied meanings, although within the black community, there's a debate on that. You know, should we use it at all? Even within my own family, we talk about that word. You know, I mean, I'm, the majority of my siblings don't use that word. You know, I've used it from time to time. I mean, like I said, it's stuff that I do, you know, I can feel it um, because I feel that, that, um, in the black community, there's been very, varied meanings of the word. I mean, you know, they, it's been in some cases a term of endearment by some people, you know, it's been a term of, you know, derision. It's been a term of disgust. It's been a term of animation. Uh, in the black community, there's still debates. As, uh, as, as there's a, a, There are debates within the black community about the word. The word has not necessarily been settled. There's a lot of, you know, um, debates with the black. Within the white community, although, like I said, I don't believe in banning words, to me, I don't really see any justifiable reason for a white person to use the word the word nigger unless if they're quoting a piece of literature or something like that, that's one thing. But even then, some people think they probably should use the N-word or whatever or that word. But to me, I just don't see any evidence because white people, historically speaking, anytime the word nigger has been used, it has been said with malicious intent. 
or yeah. as a term of derision, where the black community is much more varied and there's a lot of um, unsettledness in regards to where the debate is still taking place. Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. Um, what do you think about you? Like, it's obviously used in hip hop lyrics all the time, and mm. hip hop is you know universally listened to. So you have a lot of white kids listening to hip hop lyrics and hearing that word over and over again. And I just wonder, like, what what effect does that have? Do you think? Do you think it's a good thing, a bad thing? I I honestly have no no opinion on this at all. I it's just it is something that happens, and uh, and I think everybody knows not to say it. Every you know white kids know that they're not supposed to say it. Um, so it's, it's, you know, I, I don't even know what I'm asking, but what, what, what impact do you think that will have? I, I like to think that it will have a, a, a way of broadening the minds of these people, uh, the young people and, and, you know, going towards a place of more acceptance, but what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think among younger people, young generation, it's, um, the word nigga, N-I-G-G-A is used interchangeably with them. I mean, white kids and black kids call each other that word. I mean, one black man said he was at a concert. He was really surprised to see the number of white kids, Hispanic kids, black kids, Asian kids, they always chant the word nigga, 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 and nobody seemed to be offended. So I think within that, that realm, I guess, with generational, perhaps, that that word, now that's not the same as nigger, nigga, N-I-G-G-A. Yeah. Um, they seem to have no problem using that word among people of all, um, uh, young people among various ethnicities. So I think it's a generational thing uh, as well. And I, so I think in that sense that um, that word is already being used. And I think the impact that it has on white kids, I think they know the word nigga, N-I-G, is probably permissible, but they still probably know the word nigger is not. That's off limits. And I think that, um, you know, and I think that um, um, although you can't prohibit from any, anybody from making a, a use a word, but the reality is I think they probably know using that word uh, or hurling that word in some ways there could be consequences associated with it. Yeah, it's not. It's off limits. Um, thank you for answering that. That that makes sense. Um, you mentioned before Christopher Rufo. He's the guy in Florida who uh, DeSantis has tasked with overhauling the education system, as I see it. So you're you're a professor in Tennessee, which is not the bluest of places necessarily. Are you are you looking warily at Florida and wondering what's going on? Like what what are your thoughts coming from you know teaching what you teach in a in a kind of purplish red state? What should we be on the lookout for, I guess? I think we have to be on the lookout for, you know, people who have an agenda to uh impose their religious and moral values and um political values on people, uh, whether others are open or agree with their values or not. Uh, that is fascism in a lot of ways. And I think we have to be very, very careful of that. I think in um, Tennessee, we here in the state of Tennessee recently, the governor uh, banned drag shows, mm-hmm. you know, as well. Like, now, he was caught wearing drag. I mean, it was like also in Florida. Was it was it, it might have been Texas. It was the guy who was um who was a right wing congressperson who um implemented a, a bill to um prohibit drag. They, they saw him running around in, in, in a dress, you know, running around, you know, and um in a drag dress. So, so my point is that um some of these same people who want to uh you know uh, denounce drag and things like that for political reasons are the same people who want to um their their effort is to try to deprive others. Of their freedoms, so we have to be very vigilant and fight very, very hard in an effort to nullify such, you know, results uh, actually occurring or, you know, uh, reaching fruition. Are you concerned about that? That this this 
education thing is going to spread like a contagion out of Florida? Or do you think it's just so clearly batshit that we don't have to worry about it? Uh, I think if it happens anywhere, it's going to probably likely more happen within Southern states. And it's going to probably happen maybe in, you know, more obviously the red states as well. But mm-hmm. even some red states, I think, are going to be very, very leery and very, very cautious about, apprehensive about um, embracing such extremism. And I would say places even like, even though Iowa is a very red state, it's always been a state that's been very, very strong educationally. Yep. And I think states like Iowa and Kansas and like there as well, I think you sort of have far right factions within those states. But that being said, I think you also have a strong respect and an affinity for education that would be very, very resistant toward any type of um, imposition upon, you know, educational freedoms. So I think you might find it maybe in certain states, like I said, you know, Florida, um, maybe I would I wouldn't be surprised if Louisiana and maybe you know states like that may become more inclined to embrace such extremist measures. But I would say the vast majority of states, you know, maybe a few Rocky Mountain states, but even then, I don't think most of them would. Because um, uh, if any if any state uh, be Idaho, maybe or Wyoming, but I can't see Nevada, or Utah, you know, Colorado. I don't see those kind of state those those particular states. But are also becoming increasingly diverse too. So I don't see any of those states, um, you know, adopting or embracing such measures. Okay, good. I'm glad. Um, okay, the last thing I want to talk about is your your newest book, which is called uh, "Talking to You, Bro," uh, which is about contemporary masculinity and the ambiguousness therein. So, give us a little uh, synopsis of what what your take is about this book. Why did you write it, and what what what's your thesis? I wrote the book because uh, obviously gender studies is one of the areas that I am, you know, that I teach about gender studies and the like. Um, I wrote the book because I think men, you know, there's been a lot of talk about toxic, toxic masculinity, masculinity and uh, men are under siege. Men are, you know, in a state of siege crisis. Boys are, you know, in trouble, you know, those type of things. So I said that um, I wanted, I felt that I should, you know, I wanted to weigh in on the, on the conversation and say, here's my take on what's going on. And I feel that um, this is what men themselves should be, you know, preoccupied with. I think in our society, men have always been taught to be, you know, strong, brawny, impervious. Nothing should get you down. You're supposed to be an alpha male in the truest sense of the word. You're supposed to have, you know, six-pack abs. You know, you're supposed to have You're supposed to have a six six-figure salary, and you're supposed to have, you know, great sports cars, a attractive woman on your arm. Um, you're supposed to be a Casanova or in bed and don't forget to save the world while you're at it. So, I mean, all these dynamics, I think that these pressures that are put upon men, many men, I think, feel that way has resulted in an era in that we reside in an era of society where men feel that they, those who feel they don't measure up do resort to, you know, drug use or feel inadequate about themselves, you know, or harbor these very, very uh, deeply ingrained insecurities that I think can have, you know, detrimental impact on men uh, over time. And that's why I felt this was important. It was important for me to write this book and different essays within a book to address that issue. The, the book looks at several sections. It looks at men and, you know, the dilemmas facing men, uh, relationships, uh, men and race, men 
non-traditional roles and everything as well. So it's about 36, 35 essays in all. And um, they run about about 15, about 1,200 words each. So they're not, you know, long, long reads. They get to, I get to the point, you know, like I said, I don't, you don't have to worry about, they're not long meandering essays, you know, although there's the place for that. I'm not de deriding that. <laughs> but I think that um, these essays get to the point and um, I feel they, you know, address men in many ways. And I think there's something in there for um, all men from all walks of life to uh, uh, consider. Well, I'm glad you're, you know, you're tackling the topic because I do think it's, it's something that's in flux right now and has been, I think we're, you know, we're around the same age. So I think that, you know, our, the X generation, whatever you want to call it, um, came of age in a time of uh, the gender roles just changing vastly mm -hmm. for really the first time uh, in a very long time and his historically in some sense. Um, and when we came of age, it was, it had already happened for the most part. It wasn't in the process of happening. It was already, um, you know, shifted into lots more equality between the sexes than there ever was before, which is a good mm -hmm. thing. Um, but there's also, I think, uh, confusion that comes out of that because we're looking at models and paradigms from an age that are no longer valid. Like even something basic, like it used to be, I think back in the day that men would always ask women out and that's just how it worked. Mm -hmm. But in our day that, that was no longer true. So are you supposed to take that role? Or are you supposed to, what, what are you supposed to do? Like that's a, that's a silly thing in the grand scheme of things, but it matters. It, 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 it makes you stop and think, you know, how am I reacting? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? And now a lot of this, uh, you know, men's rights, red pill shit, I think is, um, I think they're younger. I think they're a lot of those, those, it's more of a millennial thing and younger. Uh, so now they're a generation removed from it, really trying to come to terms with it. And uh, I don't know. I just think it's an interesting thing to think about, like what it means to be a man now in this in this day and age because it's it's vastly different i think in a lot of ways than it's ever been before so it's something i think about all the time you know indeed i mean i think that um i think men are kind of uh or many men are not sure what the rules are you know yeah, what you know what exactly. they, how are they supposed to approach a woman you know how are they supposed you know um is it option a option b option c option d none of the above all of the above. I mean, I think so. You have all. I mean, it's just such a. I guess you could say it's just uncertainty that that largely um that pervades. You know, I think you know the male culture in many ways is today, and I think that um that in and of itself, you know, uh, probably does it. Well, I don't think probably it does create problems between the genders, that lack of communication or miscommunication, which in of itself could be problematic. You know, uh, men and women do need to know how to be able to communicate with one another. Yeah. But that being said, men need to know how to be able to communicate with other men, you know, I think as well. And I think, you know, women, I think, tend to do a better job of communicating with other women. But I think men in our society has always been taught that a men are not supposed to show emotion. You know, that's like I said, it's probably stoic and that as well. And um, a lot of men, because of that, I think uh, very few have really kind of really close, true friends. I mean, they may have buddies that I mean, I'm not, I mean, and I guess a buddy's a friend, but I'm saying to me that they don't have those intimate friends. Right. 
Yeah. And I am surprised at the number of men that I interviewed for a, another book that I'm working on, um, on men who are members of Generation X. That's my future book. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised at the number of men who said they had no close friends. Yeah. And studies and other articles have, have borne this out. I mean, have said, you know, pretty much what they were saying, you know, like I said, is, um, I remember a couple of times when I first got here to the area, and stuff like that, you know, a lot of times you, when you hang out in coffee shops and things like that, places, which is I do and stuff, you and you, uh, you know, at the gym or whatever like that, you work at the gym and stuff, which I do as that or, you know, uh, do hot power yoga lately. But anyway, but um, <laughs> I want to go back to dance. Dance is my passion, like hip hop and, and and Bollywood does things as well. But anyway, but um, I wanted to say is that when you do those kind of things, um, I you, you know, you meet people talk over time, you, you get this drug of conversations and become friendly with people. But the number of women who I'd meet, I guess they knew of me or whatever. And, you know, you went out to dinner with my husband or you went out to coffee with my husband. I am so glad you did that. I am really, really appreciate you doing that. And I was like, there's a pattern here. I was like, why would these women be so happy that I would go out and have coffee with their husband or, you know, dinner with other I mean, not that they should be angry about it or upset about right, it. Sure. But, no, but I was like, but um, there just seemed to be a pattern here that let me know that there's something that is not necessarily all that healthy in the lives of many men. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're right. I think men tend to be, it's harder for men to, you know, to meet people, to to nurture these relationships, especially as we get older and move away from the people that we used to know and blah, blah, blah. Um, I've had similar things here, like, you know, uh, where I were, you know, wives talking about, Oh, it's so glad that this guy went out finally, because I guess people don't, you know, um, you used the word buddy before, and I think that's a good word for for what it is, because a lot of I, I've observed and participated in a lot of when men hang out there, it tends to be activity based. It's around some sort of activity. We're going to go play basketball. We're going to go play Dungeons and Dragons. We're going to go watch a game, whatever. We're going to do something. We're not just going to go out and hang out, which is something I like to do. I don't I like to just hang around and talk. I, I don't necessarily need to have it be adjacent to some activity. That I, but I think that the activity becomes sort of a, um, a it, it makes the intimacy easier. It makes it easier uh, to give this excuse for people to hang out, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. And I also wanted to say, you know, a lot of this alt-right stuff, I think, comes from a place of grievance. It comes from lonely, uh, guys who are lonely um, and feel mm-hmm. lonely and don't know how to make that feeling go away. And they become you know, they have grievances about how they're treated by women, probably how they're treated by other men. And then they come together with this stuff. So, and it's interesting and it's both sides. I mean, Josh Hawley wrote a book about masculinity, which I'm sort of, I, he's a dipshit, but I am kind of curious to, you know, to see what his, how he attacks it, because I think his, his solutions are wrong, but he's not wrong in his observation that, that there's a shift in what it means to be a man. So. Yeah, well, he was. I, I call him Josh Chicken Holly because he was running through the Capitol that day. <laughs> no, because he's he's a problematic person in many ways. As yes, I, he is. But I feel that um, the incels you just mentioned, those guys, they call them mm-hmm. incels. I mean, they're they're a good example of men I think who have been rejected by women who feel they're entitled to have women. They're entitled to have sex with women. You know, if necessary. Yeah. I mean, some of these men feel it's okay to rape a woman. You know, they feel because they feel they want to have sex with her or whatever, that that's, that that's their right. I mean, that just shows you how irrational and arrogant and all these, you know, uh, flattering mindset that these men possess. Um, I also think that, you know, if you look at the um, 
men on many levels. I think a lot of times you were talking about activities. Where men, I think a lot of times is what can you bring to the table? Men are almost take, you know, I think they just see friendships based on business. Um, mm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, it's a more of a business relationship. And a lot of times when that particular event or, you know, situation is over, a lot of times men, those relationships don't necessarily uh, maintain themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point. It's a, I yeah. Think, I think whereas women, two women can meet each other and I'll say within six or seven months, they're fairly close friends. You know, for the, they probably know quite a bit about each other. You know, I think men in general, like I said, sports, beer, uh, and again, this is not all men, uh, but I'm saying that um, uh, there's some men who have very intimate and close relationships with other, you know, men, and you know, respectful, you know, respectful relationships. I would count myself in that category. Um, but I think there are also men who, a lot of times, have platonic relationships, you know, surface relationships, and they really don't get any deeper than that. Like it's outside of beer or what's happening on ESPN or sports and things like that. They don't they don't allow it or they're fearful of allowing it to go any further or deeper. And I think that is unfortunate because like a lot of times men, uh, especially when they get in middle age, the children are grown. Uh, you know, the, you know, they might went through a divorce, uh, those type of things and stuff as well. Those are the times I think people need individuals to uh, turn to. And I think a lot of times men do not have those. I mean, there have been a number of books written called Men Without Friends and stuff. And I think to me, it's a very... Um, I put in one of my essays, uh, you know, for people to buy. So that, and this is like a strong sentence. I realized there is nothing more sad to see than a middle-aged, angry middle-aged, lonely man with no friends. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's almost it reminds you of an Archie Bunker type, almost. And I wouldn't say Archie Bunker is the typical male, no. But I'm just saying that. Um, but I mean, it's almost that kind of mind. I think that people develop those type of mindsets. You're angry and growling and mm-hmm. cynical about life and things as well. And I think that. Um, and I think that 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 is the case. To a lot of men once they reach a certain stage in their lives that um I think that need to be you know looked at and you know um rectified and challenged yeah well this sounds good it's a, it, it it there's a lot of there's a lot to think about I think it's and I think it's important to talk about I think it is you know what you said about uh men tend not to discuss their emotions they tend to be more guarded and this and that so the more the more discussions we have about it I think you know the better um so yeah um so okay so where you, you said before but refresh everybody's mind where we can find you you're on twitter what's your twitter handle uh bleach bread like the word bleach and bread b-r-e-d b-l-e-a the word bleach and b-r-e-a not bread but bread bleach bread that's my handle okay and we can find you um i'm on facebook as well so okay you're on facebook i'm on linkedin as well linkedin as well LinkedIn, your work is on Amazon. It's all over the place. So, and and people that want to contact you can find your email address uh, and your contact information at East Tennessee State, where you're a professor. This has been a great conversation today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail.
www.mediumsradio.com.